Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Listen, if you haven't heard, postage rates are changing again. And you know what that means. The post office is going to be even more crowded than usual. And that is why we at Risk and the Story Studio use Stamps.com. We can buy and print official U.S. postage right from our desks using our own computers and printers. And Stamps.com always updates the postage rates for you automatically. And unlike those postage meter companies, Stamps.com never charges a fee to do it. So you get the exact postage you need for any letter or package the instant you need it. You never have to go to the post office again. And right now, We have a special offer for you when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Rally Moncrief behind me now. Now, this episode is the third of our best of Risk episodes. I believe it's been over a year since we've done one of these best ofs, so it's a nice time to take a look back at some of our very favorites. It's always hard to put these shows together. For one thing, a lot of our very favorite stories are just too long to put in a compilation. But also, there's the fact that so much wonderful stuff has been coming our way. And hey, we welcome more of it. If you have a story you want to pitch us, you can always go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and tell us the story you might like to tell on the show. In a little bit, we're going to hear from author and sex educator Melina Williams. But first, we're going to start today with a crazy story that came from Boston comic Ken Reed. You can find him at iKenReed.com. He told us at one of our Halloween shows last year, and the title of the story is just as insane as the story. This is Ken Reed at the Risk Live show in New York with a story we call Dog Day After... So I grew up just outside of Boston, and when I was 13 years old, I was fairly miserable. I had no friends. Uh, I was really into punk rock. Uh, I'd seen more or less every horror film ever made uh, at that point. Really not much different from now. But uh, I'd seen every horror film, everything you can imagine, like things that are horribly inappropriate for 13-year-olds. And the reason I had seen them was because my parents took me to the theater pretty much every week and took me to see Hellraiser uh, and all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Uh, And I was, at the time, I thought that was really cool that my parents were very progressive and taken me to these movies. But as an adult, I realized they're just really shitty parents who didn't want to get a babysitter. Like, they're the people that now, I'm like, those people are assholes and this isn't an appropriate movie for a child. But at the time, I was like, my parents are awesome. There's a severed head uh, forcibly performing cunnilingus on a woman on a table and I'm seven years old and that's a reanimator. So, uh, I loved horror movies. I had a subscription to Fangoria magazine because I wanted to ensure uh, that I was a virgin until I was 18. And so that, that's sort of where I was at at the time. And outside in the suburbs, just outside of Boston, like probably most uh, suburbs in the Northeast, in our neighborhood, we had a, a sort of mysterious big old Victorian house. And the man who lived in this house was named Eddie Murphy. And it was not that Eddie Murphy. That, it's, that would be a much different story. Uh, this was, in fact, uh, an 80-year-old man from Maine who used to be a train conductor. And I knew he was from Maine because of his accent, and I knew he was roughly in his 80s because he was decrepit. And uh, I knew he was, used to be a train conductor because he wore a train conductor uniform every day. <laughs> he kind of looked like Fred Gwynn in Pet Cemetery. He was essentially, he was like if you took Mr. Hooper from Sesame Street and combined him with Don Knotts, but not in a fun way. <laughs> so he lived in this house, and uh, he had five dogs, and they were all named Charlie. And we never figured out if he knew he had five dogs or if he just thought he had one, which is why they all had the same name. And we tried to stay away from him because 
I've described him for two minutes and you would say, yes, stay away from him. He always uh, had a fire burning in his backyard. And when I was a kid, which was kind of mysterious, when I was a kid, I just theorized that he was actually the mythical keeper of this eternal flame that was actually keeping the balance between order and chaos. But it turned out he just didn't want to pay for trash collection, which was the, the real story. And also, uh, we tried not to interact with him because why would you? But sometimes it was unavoidable and he would always ask us the same question. He would go, uh, been watching the BBC? <laughs> Which is a very strange question to ask in general, but an especially strange question to ask children in America. Like that's a really weird question to ask anyone. Try to avoid him. He didn't have any family as far as I know. Uh, the only person that came to visit him was this gentleman who looked exactly like Santa Claus, who only visited him in the summer, so it could have been. But, uh, and then this mentally challenged woman that him and Santa Claus would sign out of wherever she lived every so often on a weekend, and then she only wore white sweatsuits, which made it perfect for us being able to tell when she had had an incident. Uh, and he would, he would put her out in front of the house, obviously, because. She had a problem, and so we wouldn't leave our house because she would talk to you. Her name was Stevie, and she talked uh, in the third person all the time and had a, like an aggressive lisp and would be like, hey, I'm Stevie. And so the only time my family ever did anything as a family was when we hatched a plan to get out of our house without having to talk to Stevie. So my parents <laughs> would call Eddie Murphy's house, and they would ask for Stevie, and he'd be like, Stevie, telephone call. And she'd be like, oh, Mr. Murphy. And she'd run in there. And then my parents would be like, go, get in the car. Go, go, we'll pull it around. <laughs> and we'd get out. So it was really the only time we acted as a family. Also, really the only neighborhood tradition we had involved Mr. Murphy. So aside from him asking us if we had seen the BBC, uh, the only other interaction was every Halloween at dusk, Mr. Murphy would come out of his house dressed as the Budweiser werewolf. <laughs> which was a very short-lived mascot that was around just long enough for him to obtain a costume of it. It was essentially a rubber, an, a poor rubber werewolf mask and hands with a, like a trucker Bud Light hat attached to it. And he would come out of his house and he would light a road flare uh, and then do two laps around the block, jam the road flare into a telephone pole, throw full-sized Reese's peanut butter cups in the air and yell, fuckers. That's what you do. Fuckers, fuckers, for, for five or 10 minutes till he ran out of the, the peanut butter cups. And my parents would wait till we went inside and then would be like, go get those peanut butter cups because those, those are full-sized. So this is the world we lived in with, with Eddie Murphy. So when I was 13 years old, Thanksgiving rolls around, and all my dirtbag relatives are at our house, because we have a house, and free food. And they start asking us about Eddie Murphy, because we often had tales of his antics, and we didn't want to have to talk to each other about us. So we realized that we hadn't really seen him since Halloween and his traditional fuckers. So my father, who although is a Vietnam veteran, is a colossal pussy, uh, starts trying to change the subject. So my uncles, who like to bully him, were like, why don't you go check on him? Because for some weird reason, we had a key to his house, which looked like a skeleton key. Like this key looked like 
if, if the mayor of a cemetery granted you the keys to the cemetery, this is what it looked like. So after a few drinks and more goading, my father's like, fine, I'll go over there. And he takes me with him. So we've never been in that house for good reason. I have no reason to go in there. We go in, we open the door, and we start looking around. We don't see Eddie Murphy, but I realize that the only thing my father and I ever did together was go to flea markets, so we forget all about looking for Mr. Murphy and just start appraising everything in his house. Like, as we're like, okay, one of those TV lamps, that's pretty cool. So after about 20 minutes, I'm like, oh, we're supposed to look for Mr. Murphy. So we go up this stairwell, which is like the one in Fright Night, and uh, we look in some rooms, he's not in there. I notice there's no dogs. I'm like, maybe, I don't know where he went. I uh, maybe ran off to elope with Stevie. So finally we open the bedroom and I open the door and laying on the bed is Mr. Murphy with no clothes on and also missing two thirds of his skin. Uh, he was deceased, but like really deceased, like horrifically deceased because at some point his dogs ate part of him which also killed his dogs, which were all dead around his bed, right? So, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that famous photo of Marilyn Monroe where she's dead in that bed face down with the silk sheets, and it's kind of beautiful in a haunting way. It was exactly like that, except if you replace Marilyn Monroe with a dead, naked man from Maine who's not on his front, he's on his back, and looks absolutely horrified. Like, just like, he did not die peacefully. Like, he was just, ah! Like, he looked like death had come up to him personally, and he turned around to ask death if he had been watching the BBC. And was completely surprised by his imminent death. Now his arm was up above his head and was completely stripped of any flesh. It was just bone. It looked like a cartoon when a cat has a whole fish they put in their mouth and pull it out clean. It was like that. Now keep in mind, I, I had seen every horror movie ever. So the first thing that occurred to me was, that's not very convincing. I was like, Tom Savini would not let that out of the shop. That, there's no way that would have... I mean, maybe you put some KY on it and you lit it right, but that's not... No one's going to buy that. And, I mean, it smelled bad in there, but I don't know if that was any more bad than it probably smelled before he was dead. I don't know if the dogs died from eating him, if he was poisoned. They looked mutant anyway. They were covered in tumors and had very little hair. So... I'm sort of just interested in this, and I'm sort of just examining this, and I realized that my dad, the Vietnam veteran, is freaking the fuck out. Like, he screamed, like, like you would see in a movie, like, oh, dear God! Like, completely freaked. Ah! Like, actually backed up into the wall and then kind of slumped down. And then he started vomiting. <laughs> and I have no feelings, so... And also at that point, I pretty much only knew how to react to things based on movies. 
So I go, well, I'm probably going to have to slap him. Because who doesn't want to slap their dad? And what an appropriate time to do it. So I smacked him and I said, be a man. He was just kind of dumbfounded. Uh, we, we left because I don't know what else we were going to do. I wasn't going to start investigating the scene. So we walk back over to our house and, and we see all of my relatives sort of in the windowsill like a dog waiting for us to get home. Just, whoa, what's going on? We walk in and my dad is a wreck. So one of my aunts comes out and just wraps him in a blanket like, like he just finished a marathon. He's pretty much catatonic. He's full on Barbara and not a living dead. So my uncles are like, what happened? And I'm like, well, he's dead. And I see one of my uncles hand my other uncle like a $20 bill. <laughs> Obviously making good on the bet they had made. And then I say, yeah, the dogs ate him and they're also dead. And then I see my uncle hand back the $20 bill. The other uncle, he's like, I should have doubled down on that one. You, you got me. So now we should call the police. Because if you ever find a dead body, that's my advice to you. You call the police. That's what you do. And so none of them want to do it because they weren't there. They didn't see what it was. My dad's in no state because he's just mumbling now uh, with a big red welt on his face. And... Uh, <laughs> So I go, I'll, I'll call the police. I'm, I'm a robot with no feelings. So I call the police and I say, you know, this is Ken Reed. Uh, I live at this address. We just found our neighbor. He's dead. Oh, also his dogs ate him. And I hang up. My dad freaks out. Why'd you tell him about the dogs? Why did you mention the dogs? And I said, the first thing that occurred to me, I said, uh, so they don't think that we did that. Well, because it was Thanksgiving, and we're obviously not people of high income. We all look well-fed, and half of him is missing. So the police came, and it all got sorted out. And, and the weird thing is that I, I felt bad. Like a man, my father probably saw horrible shit in the army. And I don't know if maybe he was having a flashback for a time when he was in Vietnam and saw an old man get eaten by dogs. I don't know if that was a specific thing that happened. But it was weird that I didn't react at all. And it couldn't have just been being completely numb from R-rated horror movies. I don't know what the deal was, but I just felt nothing. I was kind of like, eh, that's interesting, I guess. Uh, so it's weird because that wasn't the only dead body I'd found. Like, for some reason, the universe, every eight years or so, likes to make me find a dead body just to check and see if I'm a human fucking being. Like, it's just like, you gonna react like a person to this one? And I'm just like, no, oh, okay, I've seen that. So that's how it works. Every, every eight years or so, fate's just like, let's try again. And so it's, it's coming up on it. So this year I'm anticipating another dead body at some point, uh, and we'll see if I'm a human being yet. But uh, as of this, this date, no. Thank you very much. Oh, my God.
so many years ago when I first started having this relationship with this guy, and the relationship started off as just us fucking. Basically, I was at this pizza parlor and saw this really hot guy checking me out. And my friends were like, oh, this guy's checking you out. You should go ask him out. And I'm horribly shy, despite the fact that it seems that I would be really outgoing. So I did the incredibly mature move of writing a note on a napkin, no lie, running up to the counter and saying, don't read this until I leave. And then I put it down. He starts opening it. I'm like, oh, my God, no. And I ran. And so my friends were like, Mo Williams famous BDSM sex educator just gave the pizza guy a note and ran away like a little bitch. So half an hour later though, I had like two missed calls on my cell phone. So he was into it and he calls me and it's like, hey, that was real cute. Let's get together and have some coffee. And I'm thinking, okay, great. So we go out on this first date and we're hanging out and I came out to him as being kinky and he sort of was aware of the kink community and was completely fine with it, sort of on an intellectual level, but then sort of assumed that I would be hanging from his rafters uh, within half an hour, and that was not at all the case. And we went out to this bar and got totally smashed, and we're literally making out in this bar with our hands in each other's pants. And after about a half an hour of this, and the side eye from the bartender, who was not thrilled that we were about to engage in oral sex at the bar, and I, I, I was like, it's San Francisco, get over it, this should not be that big of a deal, but it was Thursday, and I think it's Saturday is oral sex night. So we jump in his car, go back to the East Bay, and we start fooling around. And this guy is like a six foot four, blonde haired, blue eyed, lanky, really attractive guy. And I'm, you know, not necessarily the person to say, hey, look at how fabulous and amazing and awesomely sexy I am. I'm actually secretly really shy, despite being this flagrant pervert. And so when it gets to the point where moving from sort of making out to actually having to do the sexy time stuff, I get really, um, my submissive nature kind of comes out and I sort of stop being really aggressive. And, and you hope that the other person steps up to the plate. And I'm never quite sure how that's going to happen. And he had no problem at all moving into this mode. So he starts pulling off my clothes. He's got his hand on the back of my neck. He's pulling on my hair. I'm getting really turned on. I'm like, okay, this is really good. Then it's the moment of the penis reveal, which for a lot of men is a very big deal. You know, here's the penis. It's a big thing to take out your junk. He, in this case, had nothing to worry about. One of the most perfect, flawless fallacies I've seen before or since, an amazing cock. I mean, this thing was just, it had the perfect curve and the girth, and it was like slightly thicker in the middle, and then like now a little bit at the end, and you could get the grip at the base with the stuff, and the mouthful just perfect, and the balls hanging right down with the, my God, it was so. So anyway, so, okay, so this is amazing, right? And we're totally fooling around, we're totally going for it. And, um, he at one point sort of starts making that move over, get on top of me gesture. And I'm kind of a pudgy girl with short, stumpy legs. And so for me, this is not the most comfortable position. And so I, I'm sort of doing this sort of power struggle, like, hey, wouldn't it be better if you were on top of me? Fleep! And managed to like get him on top. He's like, okay, fine. So we're, we're going for it. And then he flips me over and pushes my head down into the pillow, which is super hot move 101. Uh, uh, I'm not saying that this is for the average fucker, but for the expert fuckers, for those fuckers who know what the fuck they are doing, you can get the girl's head in the pillow with the pulling on the hair and the slaps to the ass. Sweet. So I'm loving life. He's just fucking the shit out of me. I'm bent over. I'm crying and screaming to the pillow. And then I feel his hands reaching around my waist where there's fat because, you know, I'm a fat chick. 
And I do the reflex fat girl thing where I grab his hands and pull them off and go, when you were patting my ass and slapping my butt, that was fantastic. Don't grab the fat, are you mad? So two seconds later, his hands are right back around, like this time on purpose. Like the first time I could say, maybe he forgot it was rude to grab someone's belly fat. <laughs> but this was definitely deliberate, right? So I'm thinking, okay, you fucking son of a bitch. Now I'm starting to feel self-conscious. I'm losing the rhythm. I'm not really digging it anymore. Because all I can think of is this guy is grabbing my fat and I'm really aware of it and it's oozing from between his fingers. And he's just fucking and fucking and fucking. And I finally twist around and I look up at him and I said, hey, babe, could you not grab my fat while we're fucking? And he shoves my head back down to the pillow and grabs my belly again with the other hand and goes, shut up, I like it. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. just totally like came on the spot, like squirted all over the place, like, oh my God. I love you. This is the hottest thing I can ever. And so now he's like levering me back on his cock with my belly. And I'm just like, yeah, grab the fat belly. Fuck it. Yeah, you son of a bitch. I've got it. Just like coming all over the place. It was so amazing. And then afterwards, I'm laying there just like, this was so. And he's like, why are you so self-conscious? He goes, I like, he's like, I love big girls. He goes, I love the way your body feels. I love the way your tits look. I love it. He's rubbing all over me. And it was funny because we're so, we're so trained, first of all, to be so self-conscious about our bodies. And then on top of that, to also feel that we have to be independently feeling beautiful and fabulous all the time, that we should be, that we should not need other people to justify ourselves, right? And so if you have that dichotomy, to have a moment where someone actually validates your beauty based on something that you haven't valued was so empowering. And I really, really embraced that regardless of any pressure to feel as though, oh, well, you should just be happy who you are regardless. I'm like, no, you know what's wonderful? To have someone else say, yeah, I love that too. Not in spite of the fact that you're fat, not in despite that, but because of that. Because, you know, nothing was as hotter than when we started dating, I tell you, we would walk down the street and there'd be like an even bigger, fatter black woman lumbering down the street and his head would turn and check her out. And I was like, bless your heart. I fucking love that. We need to go back to your house and fuck right now, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so yeah, that was, he, he, to this day, fondest memories, fond, fond memories. This is Risk. That is Alvin and... No, 
Ivan and Alyosha behind me now. And we just heard from Melina Williams, who is the author of the book Playing Well with Others, your field guide to discovering, navigating, and exploring the kink, leather, and BDSM communities. And before that, we heard from our own Jeff Barr from the latest episode of his Mangled Meditations podcast. That episode is called Feeling My Way Through a Textured Forest. Now, like I was saying before, a lot of our very, very favorite stories are just too long to feature on a compilation like this. But it's very, very well worth going back into the podcast feed to check them out. There was Susan Kent, for example, a remarkable story called How Can I Tell You? about how when she was a teen, she successfully hid from her mother the fact that she was pregnant for the entire nine months of the pregnancy, right up until she was in labor. And she's driving so fast and screaming so loud. What is this, Susan? I can't believe what you have done. Whose baby is this? When did this happen? I don't understand. What's been going on? You've been hiding this from me all this time? When did this happen? And I said, Mom, listen. I know that I'm in trouble. I realize this. But do you think we could possibly wait for the questions until after I get through this? And in that moment, a contraction hit so hard that I said fuck in front of my mother for the first time in my life. I looked at her, ready for the next tirade, and she just whispered, You know, Susan, maybe you should try that Lamaze breathing that you've seen on TV. I think that'll work. Then there was that remarkable story by our friend Morgan, who had been an iron worker named Joe, up until the age of 50, when Joe had an accident, fell two stories, and decided to make the transition, finally, to become Morgan. I'm walking down the street in Jersey City. I look out in front of me, and there's two iron workers that were on the building. They were part of that half circle when I fell. They were guys I saw every day, and they didn't recognize me. But I couldn't let it go by. I'm like, hi. I'm Morgan. I used to be Joe. They looked me right in the face and said, Wow, you really did bang your fucking head, didn't you? And very few of our stories have gotten as huge a response as Monty Sherrier's story, The Third Man, about how she learned that a man with a neo-Nazi past, a lot of time spent in prison, drug problems, and more, was trying to take her baby away from her. But she began to feel very differently about him when she finally met him face to face. In that moment, I didn't judge him anymore. And it was like the room was filled with something magical. And I don't know if you want to think of it like God, the divine like love, beauty, kindness, acceptance, but whatever it was, it was there, and it was so palpable, and it was transforming me, like, right before my eyes. And I was able to feel love for this guy. And I'm experiencing this, and at the same time, I'm watching myself experience it, and it's, like, blowing my mind. <laughs> and then there was my own story, Beyond Kink Camp, 
where I found myself for the first time ever bound and blindfolded and bowing at the feet of this fascinating Chinese man and having a sort of -of out-of-body eureka moment, being taken back to my boyhood and realizing why I liked doing this thing I never imagined I'd like doing. Complete submission. So, I spent my formative years feeling like I had power. I felt I had talent and passion and was full of surprises. But I was afraid to let it out. To put my whole self into expressing myself. Because if I did, someone might somehow find out about the gay fag part of me. That everyone agrees is so disgustingly lame. So... Ultimately, I was just a frightened, helpless-feeling little boy. And I decided that to get by, I should be a very, very good boy. I should get the very best grades. I should never be assertive. I should agree with people. I should not stand out from the group. I should never seem strange. And sometimes today, I'll be riding the subway, and I'll see an Asian guy sitting across from me, and I'll think, he's so beautiful. But he doesn't know it, because America tells him he's strange-looking, he's weird and common, he's not powerful, he's weak. And I find myself wanting to worship him to bow before him and say, I know what you really are. Inside of you is a king. So many wonderful stories that you just won't find anywhere else. Now, we're going to do a best of risk number four soon as well, so we'll continue looking back at some of our favorite long-form stories there. In the meantime, we're going to hear a little something from Eric Martin in just a bit. But before that, a young lady, a Risk fan, named Christine, she's getting her PhD at Columbia University now, she reached out to us at Christmas time this past year. She wanted to share a story about what Christmas is like with her family. So here she is at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call Coming Home. So I can say without hyperbole um, that my childhood was like something out of a road doll novel. I, for whatever reason, latched on to reading and learning at a super young age, but I am from working class people, Republican, really not educated, very passionate about their uneducated views. Uh, and, And so a typical Monday night in my household would be me in the hallway devouring a bookshelf filled with a motley collection of whatever the church library was done with and my family my parents and my two brothers in the living room with their tv dinners uh, yelling 
at the TV, like at the grown men roughly fondling each other on the National Football League. This was a typical Monday night. I am the only person in my family to go to college. I'm the only person on either side of my family, as far as you want to look, ever to go to grad school, ever. So my family, let me start here. (laughs) This is hard, I'm sorry. Whenever anyone meets my parents, and one of the first things they ask, naturally, is about their children. And my parents always start with this. We have two boys, U.S. Marines. And then people are like, oh, thank you for their service. Uh, and then they go, oh, yeah, and then we have a daughter. She's in New York. She's doing this doctor thing. We don't know. Not a medical doctor. Some other kind of doctor. We don't know. <laughs> my parents, they drove 11-plus hours to both of my brothers' boot camp graduations at Paris Island, but would not drive seven hours for my Harvard graduation. Now, to be clear, we love each other very much. My family and I, we love each other very much. Like, we would lay down on train tracks in a second, if you asked, right? But we just don't understand each other at all. And so after the, uh, I'll call it the infamous breakfast table incident of Ot 5, uh, when my two brothers were throwing around the word fag with disturbing ease and frequency, and I finally flipped out on them and went off on a lecture about how ignorant and offensive they were, and my dad interrupts this diatribe and that booming voice of my childhood. And I'm like, oh, whoa, little Miss Harvard, you're going to come down here and tell us how to talk. Don't you correct my boys at my table. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I won't be eating at your table either. So I got up. And after that incident, we just decided, like, there are certain things that we will not talk about as a family in order to maintain some kind of civility. But despite all of this, all of these differences, there are really only two times that I have viscerally felt just how profoundly my path has diverged from my family's. And one of them was two Christmases ago. When my dad's friend Walt brings over a gift for my dad, and it was a mint condition World War II rifle and a marine issue knife. And of course, my brothers, they're immediately drooling over this. They come over, they're like fondling the wood on the rifle and running their fingers down the blade of the knife, and I'm in the corner reading my New Yorker. <laughs> Ignoring them until one of the brothers says, like, he has, a, he has an idea. Matt, he's like, oh, hey, mom, go get the camera. And I lift my eyes like, what's going on? And I see my youngest brother kind of disappear into the hallway. And the middle one, Matt, his shirt, he had taken it off. And he was adjusting the strap of that rifle around his chest. And then Derek, the baby, he comes back into the living room. And I see what he's been doing in the bathroom. And my stomach has only dropped like that one other time. And it was the first time Derek came home after boot camp and he wanted to show me something on his laptop. And we sat down on the couch and he opened it up and there as his background image on his laptop was a picture of a dead man. Splayed on his back like rifle in his hand and just a mess of bone and flesh where a head should be. And I said, what the fuck is that? 
And he said, oh, as if he didn't even notice it anymore. Double-clicking on the file he wanted. That's a dead Iraqi. And so when Derek comes back into the room that crisp day, and I see that he's taken two towels from the bathroom, and he's wrapped one around his head and the other around his face, and he took a rifle from my dad's back room, and he announces to the room, it's time for some role play. And everybody starts laughing. And I'm the only one who's not. And they start posing for the camera, taking pictures of feigning fear, feigning death, feigning victory. And this is such a great time for everyone except for me. And I'm having difficulty breathing. And Matt extends the bayonet on the rifle and sends my mom into the kitchen for some ketchup. Eight months later, my baby brother Derek comes back from Afghanistan, a totally different person. His brand new marriage is on the rocks. He is clearly racked by PTSD, but refuses to get any help for it because in the Marines, if you get diagnosed with PTSD, it follows you around and you're not able to do certain things. So he refuses to go to therapy at all in order to avoid that. About a week after he got back, my parents threw a huge party for him. I went down for it. And long after everyone was drunk and passed out in bed, it was just him and me, and we were on my parents' porch in the house in rural Maryland where there's a marine banner in the window, there's marine bumper stickers on the car, my, my dad has a marine hat, my mom has a marine sweatshirt, and he tells me, he tells me about his buddy, his closest friend from Afghanistan who came out to him after he already considered him a brother and how that changed everything about what he thought about gay people. And he told me about everything that he had seen and everything he had done, really horrible things that, that he hadn't even told his wife and that I won't tell you to protect him. And the levity, the levity of that night with the ketchup, it stood so starkly against the weight of his actual experience that there was none, none, none of our differences mattered in that moment. And so I just cradled his head against my stomach and let him cry against my t-shirt. And we just felt everything that will always connect us, no matter what. Thank you. I was 27 years old. 
and I was completely miserable. My job, I had initially thought it would be more creative. It turns out it wasn't. I'm a creative person. I love to uh, write. I love to produce. I'm an, I'm an actor. And I had just gotten a new boss, and her method of communication was exclusively via voicemail, which is to say she would be in her office and the door would be closed you couldn't knock on the door and talk to her. You'd have to call her. It would go immediately to voicemail. You'd leave the voicemail, and you knew she was in there because a minute later you would get a voicemail that would suddenly appear on your phone back, and usually the message was, yes, please fire this person. And I felt like I was a cog in this brutal corporate machine. It was not at all what I had signed up for. But thankfully, the summer did end, and I left for New York City on Labor Day weekend. Two dear friends of mine were getting married. And so I fly into town Friday night, and I hit the ground running. I literally, I remember feeling so exuberant. The moment I got out of Penn Station, I literally walked 40 blocks to this person's, like, dragging luggage behind me of, like, yes, I am feeling it. It is good. There is an excitement to this night. And uh, stayed with my uh, friend in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And uh, then the next day, woke up and had an absolutely perfect New York City day. Because it's a holiday weekend, there would be just people in the streets having parties. And this was astonishing to me. It'd be just friends of friends saying, hey, come on over, have a beer, have some hot dogs. And, uh, and I began to feel something very alien to me. I began to feel happy. Uh, these were exciting, creative people. We were playing, we were having fun, we were doing silly things. I felt like I was finally beginning to dig my way out of this horrible situation I was in. I would go back to L.A. and things would get better. And so it's 3.30 a.m. It's almost last call. We decide we're going to leave the bar. My friend walks me back to the place that I'm staying at in Brooklyn on a street named Hope, which I noted. And uh, we part ways. He continues on home to his uh, place a little down the way. And so I look back at this building that I had just been staying at, this old six-story industrial loft and I realize I don't remember how to get the fuck back in there's like a few doors in a row one's for an apartment one's the elevator and one's the staircase and I remember taking the elevator that previous night and going I am never getting back in this thing again it is old and rickety and it's weird I don't understand it you've got to like pull the the door there's like I it was Ridiculous, and I just didn't want to touch it. So I remembered where the staircase was. I was going back in there. I grab my key, and I go to this door, and there's no keyhole. And it's super dark, and I'm super tired. And so I step back onto the street, look back at this whole picture, scratching my head. I think, ah, I will call my friend. She's sleeping up on the you know, sixth floor. She might be, she's probably even awake. I'll give her a call. She'll come back down. We'll sort this whole thing out. So I'm dialing this number, and my phone dies because the battery is low. And I am stuck here in the middle of this street at 3.30 in the morning, and I have nowhere to go and no one to call. I have one chance left. So I walk back to the door. I give it a tug. It's a double door. The left door creaks and groans. It doesn't quite move. So I rear back, give it one more pull. The right door opens, and here I am freedom at last and so I step in and then I just keep stepping into this black hole 
And it is shocking to me. It's all happening so quickly. There's wind that's racing past me, and I'm feeling this incredible acceleration, but I can see nothing. And suddenly, I see stars, and there is whiteness, and there is pain, and it feels like my entire body has been punched. And there's a moment where I don't understand what's happening. Something is very wrong. I feel like I must have lost a tooth, so the first thing I go for is my face. And all of my teeth are there, but it doesn't feel like they should be. And so then I try to get to my feet, and it turns out I can, but I have to favor the left side of my body because my right side does not feel good. And I look around, and there is pitch blackness. I see nothing. And I look up, and high above me is a tiny door-sized sliver of light. And I realize, oh, that's where I came from. This is not the staircase. And I remember that right before I had stepped in, there was a guy that had been walking past talking on his cell phone with his friend. And I scream, hey, please help. And suddenly his face appears in the doorway high above me. And he says, yes. And I say, I'm sorry, I fell down this elevator shaft. And he says, really? Bullshit. Really? And I say, yes, I really fell down this fucking elevator shaft. Please, can you, can you, call, can you call someone? And he's talking with his friend. And he says, uh, I, I will call you right back. And he hangs up and he dials 911. Meanwhile, I'm looking around and my eyes are starting to adjust to the light. I'm starting to see what's on the walls and it's just brick. I'm in the bottom of this pit and there's nowhere that I can go. And I start to hear voices, and I realize that it's coming from the elevator. Now, the elevator is not on the ground floor, where I came in from, and it's not on the basement floor, which is where I landed, but it's on the fifth floor. And there are voices above, and they're coming into the elevator, friends saying goodbye to each other, coming down the elevator, onto me. And so I yell up, as loud as I can. Hey, please stop! Stop! And they're not stopping. They don't hear. And my good Samaritan's on the line with the firefighter, and he has to stop, and he yells up at them too, and we're both yelling, Stop! Please! Stop! I'm down here! And finally they hear us. I hear, Oh my God! And there's scrambling because the machinery is starting to move. The door is closed. The cycle has begun. And they pull the emergency brake or whatever it is on that thing. But I hear a grinding of gears and the elevator stops. So that out of the way, I decide to do the only thing that I can do, which is look for my glasses, which have fallen off in the Malay. And I'm beginning to see a little better, and I'm beginning to see the ground, and I'm feeling around it at first, and there's like, it's shitty down there. It's gross. There are these old bags and discarded tissues, and I'm feeling all of this crap, and I'm beginning to finally see. And what I'm seeing is that what I've landed on is miraculously a dirt floor. 
I begin to touch my first piece of metal, and I realize that there is metal all around. Metal in the form of spikes that are jutting out of the ground to interact with the elevator as it comes down. This whole elevator apparatus is all around me, and there are sharp spikes, and I had made a perfect swan dive into the middle of this dirt floor, and it somehow missed everything that was around me. And I'm like, I got to look for my fucking glasses and find these. I'm going to put these puppies on my face and I'm going to dust myself off and I'm going to take a hot shower and I'm going to go to this wedding in 12 hours because that is what I need to get to do. And so it becomes this race to find the glasses before the paramedics are there so that I can be okay again. And I'm starting to hear sirens and they're coming closer. And as the flashing lights start to appear through the crack in the door high above, success, I find the glasses and I smile and I put them on my face. And the moment I put them on my face, I realize, holy shit, they are at a 90 degree angle. They are hanging off of like the one uh, side of them is like on my forehead and the other side is on my ear. And so I threw them on the ground and looked up just as high above a firefighter strides to the edge of this door and looks down on me. And he is mustachioed. He is got his hands on his hips. He is quietly and casually heroic. And he surveys the scene slowly and he looks down at me and I apologize. I say, I am so sorry. I, I fell down this elevator. I, I'm trying to pull myself out. There's, there's no way. I, I, you may have to come down and get me. I really apologize. I fell like eight feet. No big deal. And he looks at me with that same slightly smug look. And he says, nobody, you fell about 20 feet down there. And that's when it hits me. And I start to shake a little bit on my unsteady feet. And he says, don't worry, buddy, we'll get you out of there. And uh, I don't know how they're going to do this. Well, it turns out there was a basement apartment. And so these poor people got roused at four in the morning. And about five feet above, they pry open the uh, elevator doors to their unit. And they bring down this board and they all pile in with me into this pit and they strap me to this board because they assume that my neck is, you know, just broken, that I'm destroyed. But I know that I'm not. I feel like I'd just taken a terrible beating, but I feel fine. And I know that I should not feel fine. I know I should be dead at the bottom of this pit. But I'm not. I, I hate to admit it because I'm a generally a very positive person, but all that time and that horrible job, I, I, I began to feel not just helpless or powerless, but I had begun to fear what it was like to be already dead. And I felt this is what it's like to be already dead. What I'm doing doesn't matter. And I was so happy to discover that I was not.
This is Ghost Beach behind me now, and we just heard a story by Eric Martin, the producer of the podcast This American Wife. Now, folks, we have a lot of expenses, and we have people who volunteer an incredible amount of their time and energy to continue making this happen. And some of those people we just have to be able to pay. This is my full-time job, and I'm not going to lie... Our resources are very scarce right now. Frighteningly so. But we know we have our fans. And we are listener-supported. So if you care about this one-of-a-kind programming where people can say whatever they truly feel, no matter how controversial or no matter how raw, help keep us going. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member of our network, Maximum Fun, or make a one-time donation and just specify that risk is at least one of the reasons you're there. We have one more story for you today. It comes to us from my very dear friend, Mr. Sean Patton. I love this man, and he is a hilarious stand-up. Sean is one of the many wonderful comedians that we featured on our Live in Portland episode. And this one's a little bit on the longer side, but well worth it. We call this one 500. It's just so loud when you say it right into a microphone like that. <laughs> so, I would like to tell you, the first time I was ever paid money to perform comedy was in 2005, May of 2005, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which I'm from Louisiana. Is anyone here from Louisiana? You never know. No? Okay. See? <laughs> you never know. Some of us got out. And... Baton Rouge is the capital of Louisiana. It's a beautiful city. It's got the, 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 the oak trees with the big bendy branches and the moss hanging off the oak trees. And there's lots of old bayous running through it and old men with ha- fishing. A hot, good day, sir. You know, like, even if there's no one there, good day, sir. And like, you, he's still, you know, he sees them. Does it matter if we don't? You know, it's a lot of friendly old southern Cajun people. But in Baton Rouge is also Louisiana State University, which is full of piece of shit, white, racist college students who just want to get fucked up and fucking pussy, man. Get fucked up and party, man. And there's a comedy club. Wait, I mean, this is an aside. LSU has the largest population of students graduating with general studies degrees. You know what a general studies degree is? I mean, I don't have a college degree, but at least I don't have a fucking general studies degree. I feel like not having a degree is better than a fucking college degree that says I went to college. That's all a general studies degree is. Yeah, I studied some shit. There it is. Just general stuff. There's a comedy club there in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a funny bone. 
which is a chain comedy club. I mean, just like chain restaurants. When you go, you leave, and you're like, huh. I'm full now. There are some good comedians that perform there. Just like there are some good dishes at Chili's. There are. There are some great fucking food at Chili's, but you don't really notice it because it's surrounded by shit. Um, so, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the funny bone. I'm, I'm paid to host slash feature. I'm, I'm doing 15 minutes and I bring up the headliner. And the headliner, um, uh, he was a real piece of shit. I'm not going to say his name, uh, but his name is John Wesley Austin. And <laughs> he was a real dick to me. And his whole act was, he was not from the South. He was from, like, Dakota or one of them. Is it North, South? Yeah, he's from... He was from not the South, but his act was he got on stage, had a cowboy hat on, and he got a head of southern accent, and he had himself a guitar, and he would play a Garth Brooks song, but he would change the lyrics, make them sexual. Right? Right? And that was it. <laughs> That's it. It's the worst fucking shit in the world. <laughs> But to, to, but to the, the population of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, mainly young sons of lawyers and shit, who are all eight brain cells. I mean, they loved it. They were like, oh my God, I have seen the Messiah. And he plays a guitar. He don't walk across water. He sings Garth Brooks songs and puts the word dick in there. Like that, they loved him. And they hated me. And it was, it was fucked, too, because he was such an asshole to me. He would just come on stage after me and be like, well, that pe- how about that piece of shit, huh? They don't, I don't hire my own opers. That guy's dumb as shit. Anyway, I didn't know she was a transvestite. And I didn't know it had a dick. Like, that was, you know. He would shit on me and then immediately shit on art. <laughs> The dude actually said to me, nobody ever got anywhere being original. <laughs> anyway, so they hated me. After, uh, after the shows, there was four of them, two nights, two each. The guy who got me the gig was just like, man, it's going to be awesome. You're going to get paid $100. And I was like, yes! You know, when you're a broke comedian, you're like, Yes! Which, by the way, if you caught me a couple nights ago, I started drinking heavily. I gave $54 away in increments to younger comics here at this festival. Because I was that, because I'd been, I was like, what have you been doing comedy, two years? Oh, man, I hated being broke. Here's 15 bucks, man. Get yourself a drink and a sandwich. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I gave away $54. Did not spend it, gave it away. I don't have money, but I, anywho. When, when, my, when the guy who booked me for the show was like, it's going to be a hundred bucks. I was like, fuck yeah, you know, hundred dollars. So I got there. I mean, they gave me a hundred bucks. At, and at the, that's the thing. Before the weekend started, the, guy, the, the owner was like, yeah, drinks, you know, your drinks are on the house. But after each set, he would make, he would just give me a drink and then charge me for it. It was kind of his way of saying like, I fucking hate you. The, the, I'm sitting there after the shows by myself, pounding a beer, just trying to wash the memory of the past 48 hours of my life away. And this woman, older woman, comes up to me. She's very, very attractive, but definitely a little older. Comes up and she's like, hi, hey, I thought you were funny, funny. 
And I was like, oh, thank you. And then she kind of gave me like a hmm, look and then walked away and came back eight minutes, maybe nine tops, completely shit-faced. I do not know what happened. Just, she comes back. I'm still on the same beer. Hey, mister. Mr. Buster, Mr. Buster Brown. I said to you that I thought you were funny, funny. And I was like, oh, yeah, thank, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Again, it's like, mm, you didn't tell me I was beautiful. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. You're beautiful. Beautiful. I said it twice like she did, you know? Bam. Now, cut forward to us in the parking lot walking out to her car. She's like, let's go get high. It's like, yeah, fucking right. Where's your car? I don't have a car. I got dropped off here. We got to take your car. Now, immediately, my brain's like, no, uh-uh, no. So what I said was, okay, let's do it. Hop on in. Now, Baton Rouge is a very wealthy southern neighborhood. We get to her uh, neighborhood, and it's like a gated subdivision. You have to punch a code in with like a little panel to make the gate open. And we get there, and she's like, 4916. I'm like, 4916. <clears throat> I was like, uh, hmm? She's like, oh, I mean seven. I mean seven. It's like, sorry, 4917. <clears throat> no, 4716. Oh, sorry. 4716. <clears throat> no, 4976. It's like, oh, 4976. And no, no. 49710. The next one, all right, 49710. Can't even get the other, can't even get that zero out. You know? This is going on. Finally, a security guard comes from like a booth, shines his light at the car. She does this. She opens her car door, gets out, and this is what she says verbatim. Gas Gets right back in the car. <laughs> and I'll repeat that in case uh, you don't speak shit-faced. It's right back, boom, right back in the car. That security guard, though, he apparently spoke shit-faced because he was like, oh, hey, nice to see you again. Went right back to his booth. Beep, opened the door. We opened the gate. We drive in. Now, we get to her house, and it was fucking, it was a mansion. It was a mansion in every essence of the word. Mansion, huge. Just big, sprawling lawn, this huge winding driveway. And I'm like, yes. And I drive up this winding driveway, and it's like, fuck, this is amazing. You know? What a house. I want to live in a place like this one day. And we get there, and I park. And we go into her house. Now, on the outside, I, beautiful. On the outside, it was a beautiful mansion. On the inside, it looked like the set of any movie where they had just filmed the scene where the like, high school swim team throws a party to, to save their coach from going into debt. Is that a theme? That's a... <laughs> or it looked like earlier some of those LSU college kids I mentioned had gotten there like, fucking trash the place! Because it was fucking trashed. I mean, first of all, the refrigerator was not in the kitchen. It was in the foyer laying on its side, plugged in and on, open and just full of empty bottles and cans. And she, I was like, do they, they don't, do they understand how recycling works? Is this not, not how it works? You don't have to keep the shit cold. 
for it to work. In the other corner, there was like, a, I don't even know how many, three or four dozen bottles, empty though, of black cherry cola just piled in the corner. Black cherry, black cherry soda was what I meant to say, I'm sorry. Shit's disgusting, who drinks that shit? Somebody apparently drank 36 bottles of it. It's just there, there's a mess. But the, the one thing there is that's still pristine is a full bar, just chilling, full bar, stocked. She's like, you want me to make you a drink? Jokingly, I said, yes. I would like a Grey Goose and Jameson, please. And she fucking made it. Didn't even hesitate. Didn't even think about it. I was like, okay, Grey Goose and Jameson. <laughs> Bam, hands it to me. I'm like, oh, thank you. This is the most expensive thing I've ever held. <laughs> thank you. We go into the living room. I write the couch for it had been wronged. I write it. <laughs> she disappears for a second, comes back into the room with a VCR. This is 2005. A VCR. She's like, hey, you want to watch? You wanna, I'm an actress. I want to show you something. I was like, fuck, really? Like, can you plug the, can you cook the thing up? I'm going to go get, we're going to get high here. And she hands me the VCR. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, here, plug it in, the front of the TV. Like the three, you know, it's got the three little colored things there. Plug it in, because it's 2005. Anyway, I do it. I start watching the video by myself. And it's like, it's her younger in a, in a play years, like 20 years earlier possibly, acting. I'm like, this is fucking, really? This is really what's happening right now? Okay, fine. And she comes back in with the, the high supplies. She's like, let's, let's get high. She sits down. Oh, watch, watch. This is great. And she's talking about acting and shit. And she lights the pipe. And I get a whiff of it. And I'm like, oh, 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 that's crack. That's not weed because I've smoked that a lot. That's not opium because I've smoked that a lot too. That's crack. Crack cocaine. And she, would hand, she handed it to me. I took the pipe held my breath, held the pipe kind of near my face, and then passed it back to her and exhaled. I did that like four or five times. She just passed it to me. I go, because <gasps> I'm afraid of her at this point. I'm not, no fucking clue what's going on. I'm, like, I'm not going to piss off a crackhead. She might, she can make a weapon out of a toothbrush. She probably has a shank on her right now, aimed at me. <gasps> Now, it's, this is weird enough, but then the friggin', the thing we're watching, the, the, the tape finally goes, <laughs> the film, you know, the screen goes fuzzy, it comes back up, it's her face, way younger, way younger, it's a close-up on her face, it backs away to reveal her laying on her back, she's topless, her tits are just chilling on screen, and I'm like, oh, look, your breasts are on the screen, you don't care, clearly, because you're smoking crack, you're a crackhead. <laughs> Pans back further to reveal her, she's fully nude, laying spread eagle on a patio, uh, she has a Roman candle. It's a firework. You know what that is. She has that Roman candle situated in her vagina, in her, in her birth canal. Don't worry. The business ends facing outward. This isn't some crazy snuff story. <laughs> I'm not just going to lead you guys into the darkness here. I'm not going to come on in the darkness. You can trust me, man. I'll show you the darkness, but I'm, there's also a ledge. I won't let you fall. 
She's got the thing in her vagina, the business end facing outward. The guy holding the camera lights the candle, the Roman candle. It starts blasting the Roman candle blast. The camera pans up to reveal about a dozen or so people, all dressed like Casper the Friendly Ghost, dodging the Roman candle blast as they come. All making that sound, too, in unison. It's a very pedestrian response for some of you. When was the last time you saw that? Saw a dozen people dressed like a ghost from your childhood dodging Roman candle blasts from a Roman candle that is situated in a woman's vagina. And you are watching videotape footage of this with that woman whilst she smokes crack and you sip on a Grey Goose and Jameson. <laughs> oh wait, never mind, this is Portland. You probably have festivals, that, that's the theme. Oh yeah, man, we do that every October. Only we let dogs in too, we got dogs. We let the dogs come too, man, it's a good time. Vegan brownies everywhere, and then poof, there's oh shit, she got a she got a new one of them bottle rockets in her butthole. <laughs> so I decide this is where I hey I'm leaving I'm leaving I'm leaving. I set my drink down. I get she's she's hot. If she cracked hot, she's fucking hot. She does not. I, I leave, and as I'm leaving, as I get to the front door, I notice the headlight. Head, there's headlights suddenly. I'm like headlights. Why would anybody be coming here at this hour? And then front door just opens, and it was almost like a casting agency sent over a husband. <laughs> you know. He's like, make sure his necktie's loose because he's been working all day to pay for the house that this boy's in. Make sure he's got his jacket. He's got to fling it over his shoulder like this so his wedding ring catches some light and blinds our, our lead. Because <laughs> it, was, it was like, oh, my God. It was her fucking husband. Now, he's coming in at 2 in the morning. I didn't mention that. Where's he been all day? Definitely not at the office. But I didn't, I didn't have the authority to ask this man where he had been. So I'm just like, oh my God. Because the look on my face was like, ah! like I was scared. The look on his face was like, ah! again? <laughs> like I was not the first person he'd walk in on with his wife. Now here's the thing. There's, an, there's just a moment between us where we're just kind of standing looking at each other when out of nowhere, out of nowhere, she appears and punches me three times in my face, lightning fast, out of nowhere. I'm just like, uh, rock, rock, rock. like what the fuck? Which is why whenever like I'm goofing off and my friends are like, what are you, smoking crack? I'm like, why? Did I just punch you in the face three times? Lightning fast? Because that's what they do. I've experienced that. It's crackheads. He restrains her. He's like, Cheryl! That was her name. I didn't catch it the first time. Cheryl! Like, oh, good, I'll remember that. I fucking take off. He's like, you ain't right there! I'm like, you go fuck yourself. I'm out of here. <laughs> now, here's the real thing I want to drive home. This is the real point here. If younger comedians here, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're driving back to a woman and she's got a mansion and you're driving into the mansion, just remember this. Just remember, if nothing else, remember this. Park in the street. Park in the street. Otherwise, you're going to see your gray Saturn blocked in by a Range Rover. Okay? 
So I said, fuck it, get into my car, pull into the lawn. I'm like, I will not wait. And I'm pulling, remembering his when I was driving through. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. I want to live here one day. Driving out, I'm just like, I got to get the fuck away from this place. <laughs> but I see him. He's fast. He runs, jumps into his Range Rover. He's pulling out. He basically pulls out on the street. He's got me blocked in. I can't get around him. And he's got me blocked in. There's a ravine on the other side. I can't go over it. I'm like, oh shit, I'm fucked. He gets out of his car within seconds. He's got me by my shirt. I'm like, well, I'm going to take an ass whooping. Fuck it. He's 50. It won't hurt that bad. But he gets me up against the car, and this is what he does. He goes, hey, what's your name? Jokingly, I go, Clint Eastwood. With all serious, he goes, no, it's not. The most literal family in the world. No, it's not. Tell me your name. I'm like, I'm not telling you my name. He goes, ah. I don't know. I hear that sound in my sleep sometimes. <laughs> Tell me your goddamn name. It's like, go fuck yourself, man. You're not getting my... It's almost like he was signaling to the other lizard people for assistance and SOS. <laughs> Range Rovers and Mercedes start pulling out. Other rich white guys. Say, what happened? <laughs> Tell, me. Tell me your goddamn name. Then he pulls a checkbook out of his pocket. You tell me your goddamn name. I tell him my name. <laughs> Take this. You get the fuck out of here. And you tell no one about this. You keep your fucking mouth shut. <laughs> then he gets back in his Range Rover, drives back to the house, and this is the best part. He gets out, walks up, right as he gets to the front door, stops, looks at me, because I'm still standing there kind of shell-shocked by the whole situation. He stands there, looks at me, and just does this. As if I forgot what I was supposed to be doing. Like, oh yeah, I gotta leave, sorry. Now, I left. I made $100 at that comedy club, pouring my soul out to fucking asshole pieces of shit. But I made $500 to never tell that story. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. Good night. is all for this third edition of the best of risk this is the view behind me now uh now we are going to have a fourth edition of the best of risk very soon and and we were not able to i wanted to include 
a lot of the stories that are on the all-star episodes those all-star episodes are kind of like the best of risk five six and seven <laughs> so do go to the itunes store to pick up our all-star episodes they're just 2.99 each the third all-star episode will be out in the end of january they're just very special episodes it is a way that you can help us keep risk running don't forget there's also going to maximumfund.org uh, slash donate. That is how you can really help us out. Become a member there or just make a one-time donation. And be sure to earmark it for risk. If you're new to the show and you like what you heard here, there are dozens of free episodes at risk-show.com or iTunes. Be sure to comment about us on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show. Follow me on Twitter at the Kevin Allison. We have lots of great live shows happening in the beginning of 2013. Just go to risk-show/tour to find out about our stints in South Carolina, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco and New York. Spread the word about the podcast to your friends, write to your favorite publications that they should be covering us and send us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Hey folks. 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 Jesus God. Oh my goodness.